All right, you guys. So I am so excited to continue our journey through the book of Exodus. And today we are in Exodus chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus 16. And how appropriate is this wilderness narrative to our circumstances today? The, it is an absolute joy and delight and personally edifying and comforting and challenging for me to be studying through and get to spend so much time with this particular text because I believe that we are in a wilderness time. There are a lot of challenges, challenges without, challenges that are external, challenges within, relationally with people, but also we see that the main challenge is a spiritual challenge. Just like Israel, you and I today, though we face many external challenges, the real challenge is ultimately a spiritual challenge. And so I hope that as much as God is going to prepare us and equip us to deal with these external realities that we're responsible to deal with as best and as faithfully as we can, and yet there is a deeper need that we all have. And I pray and hope and believe that that spiritual deeper need is going to be met this morning. All right, so Exodus 16, we're going to do the whole chapter. It's one one story, one narrative unit. It is the story of manna in the wilderness, famous story, paradigmatic story for Israel and for us. And so we'll read Exodus 16 together and then we'll get into our study. So Exodus 16, verses 1 through 36, I'll read a little bit more quickly so we can cover the chapter. This is God's word. And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in, in Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out to this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Also Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, 
At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered, some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered each according to one's need. And Moses said, Let no one lead any of it until morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. But some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning and every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, and a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called its name manna. And it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it, to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness, when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot, and put an omer of manna in it, and lay it up before the Lord, to be kept for your generations." As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna forty years, until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning. And we just pray that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church today. Lord, I believe that we, like Israel, find ourselves in a wilderness season. There are difficulties without. There are struggles within. 
Lord, we live in this world as flesh and blood creatures. We have practical, material, physical needs. You know how real those are. You know how meaningful those are to us. And at the same time, because you've made us, you know that we are not simply flesh and blood, but that we have a soul. We are a body as well as a soul, Lord. And you know that your people not only need material financial provision, but they need provision for their souls. And so, Lord, it is my prayer today that you would prepare your people to receive from you the word of God, the bread for our souls. And I pray that out of that, we would become men and women who can endure wilderness seasons with great faith, that we can trust in you, who is always faithful, who will never change, who has always come through for us, and therefore we can trust you in the present. Lord, increase our faith, bless your people, and use this time to bring glory and honor to you and to equip us for ministry this week. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everyone. So again, what a timely passage in Scripture. There are so many things in Exodus 16 that I think apply to us. And I also think they're just common to human nature. And so the main theme I want to focus on this morning is God's provision. God's provision. And there's one main thesis I have regarding God's provision, and it is this. God's provision will come in God's way, in God's time, and in God's amount. Let me say that again. God's provision will come in God's way, in God's time, in God's amount. And so I'll be unpacking the features of this text. There are numerous life lessons for us, numerous things to believe, to be corrected in. And at the end, I want to kind of come back around and talk about how God wants to meet our needs today. So first of all, verses 1 and 2. And with verses 1 and 2, my main point is this. Remembrance of God's goodness in the past is key to faith in the present. Remembrance of God's goodness in the past is key to faith in the present. Look at verses 1 and 2. Moses writes, And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. So we know from Numbers chapter 33, verse 3, that this event is exactly one month after they've left Egypt. So it's, it's been a month. Now again, if you go through very, very hard times, a month can seem like forever. So I want to be sympathetic to that. When you're in a wilderness season, a month can feel like a very, very long time, especially when you're not sleeping and you're staying up all night worrying about how you're going to pay the bills and, oh my gosh, what if you know the government does this horrible thing? Then, then what will we do? So again, I recognize that in a wilderness season, a month can seem like forever. But I think we can also take a step back, if we can, for a moment and acknowledge a month is not that long. In the big scheme of things, in the big scheme of life, a month is not that long. And what we see here is it only took a month for Israel to almost forget the goodness of God in the past 
and to sort of, they're not just facing a challenge, but they're facing it as though God's past provision means nothing for them in the present. So notice that it says the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained. Now, it actually seems like we saw grumbling before, we saw complaining before, but it seems like it's spreading. And I think we've all observed that complaining and murmuring and just, you know, fear as kind of an attitude is contagious. The more people begin to complain, the more they begin to, you know, murmur and, and just fear. The more you give in to fear, it starts spreading and it spreads rapidly to the point where it says the whole congregation of Israel. It's not just, you know, a certain group. It's not just the leaders. It's not just most. It says the whole kahal, the whole congregation of Israel is complaining. So we need to be careful because it, it seems apparent that even though God has done great things for Israel already, already he's delivered them out of Egypt. He did the 10 plagues. You would think that that should be enough to follow the Lord the rest of your life. What he did to Egypt, even if he sends me into a wilderness and, and I don't know where my bread and is going to come from the next day, I can still trust the Lord. Look what he did to Egypt. And we've even seen so far that God has provided water for them when they were complaining about water. God provided water for them. So I marvel, not just at Israel, because I don't see this as merely an Israelite problem. I think this is a human problem. I think this is our sinful, finite human nature. And what happens is we forget the good things God's done in the past. And that causes us, it, it enables, it empowers us to doubt God in the present. So what's a practical remedy for this? Obviously, to practice remembrance. Practice telling the stories of what God has done for you. Maybe some of you, you have this tradition where on Thanksgiving, you know, family gathers around and you sit around a table. And I know a lot of families do this, including non-Christian families, and I think it's a great one. You tell each person goes around the Thanksgiving table and share something they're thankful for. I think as Christians, Thanksgiving should be a daily thing. I don't think it hurts to gather around the dinner table. And we know there's sociological studies that say families that eat together stay together. That they're better off. Families that have completely disjointed schedules where they never get together, they never sit down, they never turn off their technology devices or they're always busy, they're, they have, there's more problems. I would encourage families, and maybe if, even if you, you live alone, that you rehearse the good things God has done for you. You can speak these aloud. You can say, hey, do you remember do you remember when we were first married and, and we were so broke we didn't we couldn't afford groceries? Do you remember that? Do you remember when you know I had to sell my car and I was walking to work and we were recycling not because we loved the environment but because we liked to eat? Do you remember that? You can tell these stories 
with one another. You can talk about, do you remember those sleepless nights? Do you remember when we thought God's forgotten about us? Uh, we, we were worried, oh, well, maybe I've sinned and, and God's punishing us. And do you remember how he came through? Do you remember how at the last minute God came through? Or maybe you have a story like mine where God didn't come through at the last minute. He came through like an hour after the last minute but he came through. I, I thought this was the deadline, and apparently God doesn't always keep arbit arbitrary deadlines. Do you remember how God did that? Friends, I encourage you, practice gratitude. Remembrance of God's goodness in the past is key to placing faith in the present. Israel forgets. Israel forgets. We forget. Let us remember. Verse 3 we're going to see that fear distorts our memory so that the present seems hopeless. Fear distorts our memory so that the present seems hopeless. Look at verse 3. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with fear." Notice what is happening. Israel is faced with a real challenge. And when the Bible says, do not be afraid, or perhaps you and I say to one another, don't be afraid. Let's say we share, hey, I got this really bad thing going on, or oh my gosh, we don't know, we don't have enough in our account to, to, to pay our bills, or, or, or you know, this might close. This, if this law passes, we're, we're getting shut down and all this. And I think sometimes when, when we say do not be afraid, or the Bible says do not be afraid, um, we can be offended. We can actually be offended when someone says do not be afraid. Because what we hear is, you're not taking my problem seriously. And friends, I want to assure you God takes your problem seriously. And he takes them exactly in proportion to the way that they should be considered. You and I don't always do that. In other words, it can be right and understandable that there's a sense of fear, but what do we do with our fear? Do we take our fears and, and acknowledge them and give them to God? Do we pray them out to God? And then do we choose to trust God with our fear? Or do we do what Israel did here? And notice what they did. Notice how fear starts to do things. It adds regret. Notice it adds regret. How does that help you? How in the world is going, oh, well, we shouldn't have left and whatever. It's like, I've done this a million times where, gosh, I'm in this situation. Oh, and if 10 years ago I would have done this or I would have done that or if we wouldn't have done this or if we would have seen this coming and planned ahead. Yes, yes, of course. But how does that help? How does it help to regret the past? And who knows? Maybe you couldn't have done anything about it anyway. But notice, fear starts going into this regret. And then it moves into unthankfulness. Notice what they say about the Lord. The Lord delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. But as far as Israel is concerned, the Lord may as well have killed them in the land of Egypt. Complete unthankfulness for what the Lord has done. So regret, and that leads to unthankfulness. And notice what happens next. It leads to blame. You start blaming people for what's going on. Notice what he says at the end of, uh, what, the, what Israel says at the end of verse three. For you, Moses, have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with anger. We start blaming people. 
It's, it's because I think there's a sense of control. When we're afraid, it's because we're not in control. And blaming, it kind of feels like, well, hey, I'm identifying the problem and I'm pointing the finger. And that's that gives me some sense of control. And if you'll just take up responsibility for what I'm blaming you for, then perhaps this whole thing will go away. But notice how the blame, and sometimes there, there's blame to be given, right? But notice here how the blame leads to slander. How the blame leads to slander. You, they're asserting motive to Moses. We have to be very careful. I'm seeing a lot of Christians right now doing this. When they don't like something someone's doing, whether it's another pastor or another Christian or their husband or their wife, they begin doing these things. They're scared. And so they begin regretting things. Oh, we, we should have done this. They start becoming unthankful. They start blaming and then blame easily. It's not identical, but it easily leads to slander. Notice how they, Israel moves beyond simply, okay, Moses, you brought. It's true. Moses led them. Of course, the cloud, God led them. But yes, sure, Moses led them. But notice they slander him. Is it true that the motive of Moses was to kill the Israelites in the desert? No, Moses loves them. He loves them. He loves them so much. He was willing to give up all the wealth and riches of Egypt. He loves them. And yet here they are slandering them. Moses was raised in the house of Pharaoh. Moses risked his life saving an Israelite who was being beaten by an Egyptian and he killed him. He loves them. He's going to spend 40 years of his life leading these people, these unthankful people. He loves them. And yet they slander him. Friends, there, I understand that there's fear right now, but we need to make sure we don't start engaging in these steps. This means we are giving into fear. And if we're doing that, we're in sin. The Bible says, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Trust in the Lord. Do not engage in, in endless fantasies of regret of what could have been or should have been or shouldn't have been in the past where you and I can do nothing. Don't let it spill into an attitude of unthankfulness where all the good things God's done and even the good things right in front of you today suddenly become meaningless, tasteless in your mouth. Be very careful when we assign blame. Again, sometimes, yes, there's genuine responsibility to be assigned. And, and I'm not saying that's wrong. But notice, when blame is driven by fear, it easily becomes slander. I've seen people accusing, you know, pastors and church leaders and other Christians of motives they have no idea about. They don't have all the information. They didn't ask, what are you thinking? They didn't ask, is this what you mean? They didn't desire to truly understand. There was an unwillingness to, and so instead they just slander. Because you don't agree with me, or you don't understand me, or I don't like what you're saying, I'm going to slander you. Friends, we cannot be like Israel is being here in the wilderness. It is entirely human to do so. I'm seeing it happen literally today. It is happening. All these Christian leaders. And again, friends, I don't agree with every pastor that's out there. I don't agree with every Christian. But they're my brothers and my sisters. And I love them. And I understand I don't bear their particular burden. I don't know all the things they know. I don't know what's in their heart and what's motivating them. And so I need to be gracious 
towards them and not allow fear to turn into slander. Now, we're going to look at a, a big chunk of, of scripture right now, verses 4 through 19, but there's a very simple principle that I want to expound on, and it's this idea that God's blessing comes with God's law. God's blessing comes with God's law. Look at verses 4 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain, rain bread from heaven for you. Now, that, that word rain is interesting. It's the Hebrew word matar. Now, that word matar, when we've seen it before, it was used with respect to judgment. God rained matar judgment down on Sodom and Gomorrah. God matar, he rained down judgment on Egypt. And you could almost think if you're reading, especially reading the Hebrew, and you come to this and you say, matar, oh my gosh. If you're sensitive to how that word's been used and you notice Israel has just sinned, they're grumbling and complaining and slandering. They're forgetting the goodness of God. God could be raining down judgment and he would be right to do so. God would be right because of Israel's sin, because of their unbelief. He would be right to judge them, to rain down judgment on them. But what does God do? Instead of raining down judgment, God rains down grace. He says, behold, I will rain bread. That's his response to their sin. I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. So let me sum up what's happened here in verses 4 through 19. Israel deserves judgment. They get grace. So don't let anyone tell you that the gospel of grace is completely hidden in the Old Testament and it only appears in the New. No, I believe we see the grace of God many, many times in the Old Testament. And here is an example. In a place where you would expect God to rain down judgment, matar, you see rather the raining down of God's grace. And who is this God? who in response to sin, and we could expect judgment, punishment, gives grace instead. Again, this is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God who sees our sin and knows our sin deserves judgment, and yet he takes the penalty for our sin so he can rain down grace on you and I. Friends, I don't want any of you to think that during this wilderness experience we're in, you've got to be perfect or God's not going to bless you because that is not an understanding of the grace of God. By God's grace, even if you and I blow it, if we're not thankful the way we should be, we've got a short memory, we forget all the goodness of God, we start blaming and slandering our brothers and sisters online and sharing nasty tweets about them or whatever, even if we sin in those ways, God is so incredibly gracious that he may just bless us anyway. But friends, what we need to learn is that grace is never license. Grace is never given so that we can remain in our sin. Rather, grace is for change. Grace enables us to see the goodness of God and to win our hearts so that we desire to obey God more and more. And so even though God is gracious, friends, we must obey. We are called to be sanctified. We are called to be set apart. And so notice that with God's blessing and grace also comes a test. 
God is going to test us. He is going to hold us accountable to obey his laws. Notice that as God rains this bread from heaven, there, are, there is a quota. You will notice that no one is allowed to gather more than they need. That's a test, isn't it? No one is allowed to gather more than they need. Now, human nature would probably prefer, and I mean, there's lazy people who maybe don't want to go out and get even their daily need, but there's many people where our temptation is not so much to meet the bare minimum, but our temptation is to go far beyond the maximum. That en enough is never enough. That we could always be worried about tomorrow. Well, tomorrow could be this. Oh, the next day after that could be this. And that can become a way of life. And so there, there's never a limit for some people. So notice, God provides a test. The lazy person must work or they will not eat. They must work or they will not eat. Isn't That's a principle Paul talks about in the New Testament. Christians are loving, we're gracious, we're kind, but people must work. And notice how here in God's economy, he, he graciously gives, but it enables those lazy people, they must work. And yet there's also those super ambitious, driven people who are not okay with the minimum. And as a matter of fact, they're not okay with the maximum. They want more and more and more. They have that insatiable appetite, that workaholism that is common in America. Americans are well known around the world for being workaholics. And so for us, this idea of this limitation on our work, that it has boundaries, is part of a test of God. Notice God adds another test. Not only can you only gather each day enough for you, then there is another test. And it is this. On the sixth day, God's going to give a double portion. So you're allowed to gavel, gather double on that day. But on the seventh day, they are commanded to gather nothing. They are commanded to gather nothing. You'll notice that God puts a boundary around worship. That God provides for you in such a way that you are free to worship and that you maintain the priority of worship. We don't let our desire for more money to get ahead in life to crowd out our worship. For many American Christians, they plan their week around everything else and then church is kind of like, well, it's on the side, it's the last thing. But that's not the rhythm established in the Bible. In the Bible, worship is at the center because life is ultimately about God. And worship expressly reminds us that all of life is about God. And so notice there is a boundary over this time of worship that Israel is to observe. So even with God's grace and blessing, there's responsibility. There is a test involved. And that test is there to reveal to us our own unbelief. The tests are there to reveal our own unbelief. Many times in life, especially when we've passed tests before, we feel like, oh, I've arrived. I know what it's like to struggle. Um, I know many of us, myself and Lou, I know what it's like to really, really struggle. We have been there. And, and many people are surprised when they hear how bad it was at one time. We really, really struggled. But one of the things you and I can do is go, well, I struggled back then. I passed my test. Therefore, uh, my faith is solid. It's good. But many times what God shows us through trials is that our faith is not as robust as we thought. 
We can deeply, deeply, sincerely believe, man, I'm solid in the faith. I totally trust in Jehovah Jireh, God my provider. And then this happens. The coronavirus happens. The government shutdown happens. The crazy stuff going on in our society and the rioting and the protesting and all this stuff, that starts happening. And suddenly, many of us who felt like our faith was so strong are being challenged in this moment. Now, friends, I know that having our faith challenged never feels good, but I want to assure you it is good. It's like going to the gym. In the gym, they teach you that if you want to gain muscle, there's something called the overload principle. And the overload principle is quite basic. You're not going to build muscle by lifting the same weights you've always lifted. In order for the muscle to grow, it must be torn down. And the only way it can be torn down is if you take on an increasingly heavy load, a load you have not previously carried before. And having now carried this load you previously never carried before, and you exhaust yourself, and you feel a tearing down, and it doesn't feel good. And many people want to quit at that moment. They're not willing to do what it takes in order to grow. But if you want to grow your muscles, that's what you must do. Friends, I find that there is a great parallel between the idea of human skeletal muscle and spiritual faith. That we can have genuine faith, but unless we are given things in life that overload our previous existing capacity to trust, then our faith will not grow. And most of us would probably say, God, I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to go to the gym today. God, I want to sit on the couch, eat potato chips, dip it in cream cheese, and watch Netflix for an ungodly amount of hours. Like, that's the spiritual life I want. Unfortunately, God is like a personal trainer. And he comes in your house and says, get your rear end off the couch, put the chips away, turn off the Netflix, and you're going to go run a couple of miles until you throw up. And I know we're like, God, you're horrible. Do you hate me? Why are you doing this? But God loves you. He knows that if he leaves you on the couch where we are spiritually, where we want to be, we will grow sick. We will grow tired. We will not be able to do what God has called us in the world to do. And so God shouts to us in our trials. He's that personal trainer that will allow your faith to be revealed for what it is and, and sort of broken down. But friends, it is good. Because if your faith is being tested, this is your opportunity to grow. And God values faith. God treasures faith. First Peter tells us that to God, faith is more precious than gold. So remember that our values sometimes are not God's values. We do not, I'm, I'm assured of this, we do not value faith as much as God does. He finds it precious. He wants his children to trust. That is why he is doing the things he's doing. Why just a daily portion, God? Why are you giving them just enough for one day, every single day? God, why don't you give them enough for a year on one day? Wouldn't that be nicer, friends? If all God cared about was provision, that makes sense. But if what God cares about most is faith, then what he has done here, teaching his people to pray this prayer, give us this day our daily bread. 
I believe that that prayer that we know as the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, is a summons back to this moment. It is a summons to believe when Israel did not. It's, it is a summons for the people of God who believe in Jesus the Messiah, the greater than Moses. It is our opportunity to say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. I want to trust you in the wilderness. I want to believe you. I don't want to violate the test that you are giving me in this moment because I see ultimately that is an attack on you and your goodness and you deserve my loyalty and my praise. And so Lord, I am going to trust you in the wilderness. I am going to trust you for my manna. I am going to trust you for my daily bread. Now let's move on to verses 20 through 28. And in verses 20 through 28, I want you to notice something very important. And that is that sin uses anxiety and fear about tomorrow to justify disobedience today. Sin uses anxiety and fear. So ultimately, it's sin working in you. But it takes the occasion of anxiety and fear about what's going to happen tomorrow in order to justify disobedience today. So look at verse 20. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stink. Friends, stop there. Why did Israel do this? Why did Israel disobey? I believe ultimately it's this principle here. Israel had enough for today. But they surmised, they allowed, sin was working. Anxiety and fear were saying to them, I don't know that we're going to make our payment on the 1st. Today is the 20, 21st, but I don't know if we're going to make it on the 1st. So on the basis of looking into the future and allowing anxiety and fear to take over, Israel justifies disobedience today. Friends, this is an all too common phenomenon in the Christian life as well. Many of us are in sin right now. We're in sin now. We're disobeying God. Some of us might not consciously know it. Some of us, we know it. We actually know we're disobeying. But what we tell ourselves is, well, the reason, God, it's okay for me to sin today and to not obey you and do what your word says is because of this fear down the road. If I obey you today, God, I'll be in trouble tomorrow. That's the idea, friends. Do we not see this in ourselves? I see it in me. I, I believe you can probably see it in yourself. God, you don't understand. If I obey you today, I won't be okay tomorrow. And that becomes justification for sin. But friends, what I have to say on the authority of God's word, not my opinion... There is no excuse to disobey God today. Nothing that could possibly happen tomorrow or the next day or the next month or the next year or 10 years from now, nothing in all the future can justify my disobedience to my Lord and Savior today. Nothing. We cannot allow any concern about tomorrow to cause us to disobey today. And yet we see Israel doing this. 
time and again, they disobey God. Notice in verse 25, Moses says, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Verse 27, now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my laws? I believe that's a question for the Christian church today. Are we going to allow our worries over COVID-19, over what the government is doing, over our financial situations, over our physical health, over what your spouse is doing, over what whoever is doing. How long are we going to allow all these things to become the excuse for us to disobey and dishonor God today? Friends, these things out there, there may be some validity to them. We, we don't have to say, oh, none of this is real, or it doesn't need to be dressed, or it's not a problem. We don't have to say that. that that's a false dilemma. What I'm saying is, however we deal with whatever there is to deal with, it cannot proceed from unbelief. It must proceed from faith. That whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, Paul says in Romans. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever wisdom we think we have in dealing with problems of tomorrow, if it's in a way where we have to sin today, I guarantee you it's wrong. It is not God's way for you or I. So make sure that sin is not using anxiety and fear about tomorrow to justify disobedience today. There is no justification for sin. Faith is the way. Trust is the way. Obedience is the way. Obey the Lord in the little things today. Obey him in everything and in all things. If you obey the Lord, I can trust you will end up on the right path for tomorrow. Verses 29 through 30, we see that God's rhythms and boundaries are a gift, not a curse. In verses 29 through 30, we're going to see that God's rhythm and boundaries are a gift, not a a curse. Look at verses 29 through 30. See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Notice, it, it's a gift. The Sabbath is a gift. It's not a curse. The Sabbath, it almost became this, this curse. It was like, no, Jesus said the Sabbath was for you. It was a gift. It's not like, oh, God loved the Sabbath so much that he created human beings to fulfill it. No, God loved human beings so much he gave them the gift of the Sabbath. And again, somehow it got, it got turned around. And I think how that happens is we get a wrong view of God. We think that God just loves rules arbitrarily and therefore your response to this God who loves rules is either A, disobey the rules, or B, Believe that God only loves you and you keep the rules, and then if you keep the rules, then you're better than all the people that don't. The problem is, that's not the point. The point is not that God loves the rules. The point is that God loves you. The Sabbath was made for man, Jesus said, not man for the Sabbath. Notice what he says. See, for the Lord has given you 
the Sabbath. It is a gift. That rhythm of the six days of work and the seven day of rest is a blessing. Now, as far as Christians in the New Covenant, we know that we don't have to observe the Sabbath laws of the Old Testament. We know Hebrews teaches that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. We enter in fully to him through the work that he has done. However, I would like to suggest this for Christians today, that the Sabbath is still a principle that can be a gift in our lives. I believe it's a principle. It's not this strict rule that you have to observe. Rather, it is a principle and it is a gift. The idea of setting aside time to worship for God, the idea of setting a limit on your work, is there a time when you're off? Is there a time when you say, I can't work past this time because my wife or my children need my attention? Is there a time where vice versa? Maybe, you know, I, I've known people, trust me, friends, as a pastor, I've talked to all kinds of people. And, and it really is amazing how different people can be. I know some people are the workaholic type and the hard thing for them is to put a boundary on their work. I know people that were the opposite where, you know, they, they didn't really want to work. They just wanted to spend time, you know, with their family or whatever it was. And it's like, no, you know, you need to have a boundary on your family time, believe it or not. And you need to be able to work as well. Um, all these different rhythms can be different for people. But I just want to point out that this idea of a Sabbath rest, a rhythm, boundaries for God, that there's things God doesn't want completely confused. He doesn't want you to work seven days a week, 24 hours a day with no room for your relationships and no room for the worship of God. But the other things are also true. And so I think, again, we have a model. Work is a major part of life. And work doesn't mean what you always get paid for it, by the way. Whatever you do, you take the raw materials of creation. You use your gift and talents. You use your words because words accomplish things. So in whatever you're saying and whatever you're doing, that, that you're doing that. For some people, they hit the retirement years. And because for most people, the word work equals pay, they think, oh, well, I don't have any work anymore. That's not true. Friends, I am convinced as a Christian and a pastor that the retirement years can be the best years of a person's life. Because many times earlier, before you're able to retire, maybe you don't like your job. Maybe you don't love your job. Maybe your job keeps you from doing the things that you love, serving the Lord the way you want to. And the retirement years don't mean you don't work anymore. It means you don't have to work for a living. But what you can do is do things for the Lord. Do the things he's put on your heart. Say the things he's wanted you to say. Do the things he's wanted you to do. So again, just, just this principle of rhythms and boundaries, these are gifts that God has given us. Boundaries for worship, for work, and for family. Do we clearly make time for those things? It's a gift of God. And if we're out of rhythm, we're going to experience the consequences of being out of rhythm. Lastly, verses 31 through 36. And the house of Israel called its name manna. And again, manna is in Hebrew, manhu. And it, it, what is it? 
whatchamacallit. We, we don't know what it is. Now, it's interesting because scientists have actually discovered what they think manna is in the wilderness. I know maybe some of you have heard that before, but I think for some of you it might be new. Scientists have actually discovered what they believe the manna is in the wilderness. There's a couple of different theories on what it is. Uh, number one, scholars contend that this substance is the honeydew excretion of two types of insects that live on the numerous tamarisk trees in the region. It is a sweet, sugary, transparent substance that turns white, brown, or yellow and is rich in carbohydrates. So they've actually found that in the Sinai Desert. They have also found a particular lichen that turns into these little flaky balls and falls onto the ground and can be blown in the wind. So it could be these things that God used in order to provide for Israel. But notice what he goes on to say. He goes on to say, And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. So here's the point. If we forget what God has done, we will not be able to see what God is doing. If we forget what God has done, we will not be able to see what God is doing. How important is it for you and I to see what God's doing today? I think it's so important. I think it's always important, but I, I think the, the almost tangible sense and feeling of the vital importance of understanding what is going on in our world today is so heavy upon me. To know what's going on, to be like the men of Issachar in the Old Testament who knew the times and knew what to do. It is so important. Well, part of the key of understanding and discerning the times is not forgetting what God has done. So what God is telling Israel here is, in order for you to be my people, in order for you to be my people in the future, in order for future posterity, the generations to come, for them to be who I've called them to be, you need to take some jars and you need to fill it with this manna. And I want you to never ever forget I want you to look back on this moment, and I want, to, I want you to remember my mercy, my steadfast love, my graciousness, my kindness, my provision. I want you to remember, because if you don't remember in the past what I've done for you, you're not going to be able to see what I am doing in the present. So again, friends, we must not forget what God has done for Israel, that this story is not just a nice story. Because though we might not be Old Testament Israel, yet we are the people of God. We belong to God through Jesus Christ. We are Christians. And the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. It is not a different God. 
So this same God that was with Israel in the wilderness, that provided manna for them, is the same God we have today. And so friends, let us remember the miraculous provision that God provided. If any of us are doubting God's provision today, let us remember that just as God was faithful to Israel, he will be faithful to us. As I said earlier, we can draw off of our own personal testimonies and stories of God's provision, and indeed we should. But these things were divinely recorded in Scripture also to summon forth faith in us. We are meant to hear these words today and say, Wow, if God was able to provide for Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, He's able to provide for me today. And so I hope you hear and see these words as God's word for you. Now at the beginning I said my thesis was this. God's provision will come in God's way, in God's time, and in God's amount. First, notice how God's provision came in God's way. God miraculously caused the manna to come to Israel for 40 years. Now, just a moment ago, I highlighted the fact that scientists have discovered a substance that looks like manna and tastes like manna in the wilderness. So some people go, ah, well, that's a natural explanation. So there was no miraculous Friends, that's not true. First of all, if it is this substance, which I think it might very well be, it only takes place largely within a three-month period out of the year. In other words, God, if this is what it is, this substance, this honeydew excretion from these insects on the tamarisk trees, if that's what it is, God had to supernaturally take something that is only there for three months and have to provide it all 12 months of every year for 40 years. And we know that there was 600,000 male soldiers, about 2 million people. So in order for that amount to be multiplied and to come not just for three months, but for a year, God had to bless and multiply this manna. God blessed and multiplied. And isn't that interesting? Because is that not exactly what the feeding of the 5,000 was? When Jesus fed the 5,000, did he make the food out of nowhere? No. He took the existing materials that were there. There was five loaves of bread and two fish. It was there, but it was not enough. God took the natural that was there, and he miraculously, supernaturally blessed it and multiplied it and made it enough. I think we have a parallel here. Even if there is a natural explanation for part of it, it does not account for the whole of what God did. So notice that God miraculously provided through natural means. So when you and I think of God's provision and we say it's going to come in God's way, friends, I don't want you to think that, oh, well, it can only be miraculous. And miraculous to me means no human agency whatsoever, no natural provision. Friends, that's not the case. God works through things he has made. Sometimes it is according to the natural processes, and the Bible says that's still God. Some people's theology is unless God does something extraordinary, it's not God. That is really bad theology, and what it leads to is ingratitude. 
if people have a theology that unless God drops literally bread or cash out of heaven, that it's not God, what happens? You don't thank God for your job. You don't thank God when you get your paycheck in the mail or you check your online business account and you see that the check went through. What happens? You stop thanking God for that because somewhere in your mind you got the idea, well, if I'm involved or if I did anything or there's any natural existing materials, then it's not God. Friends, that's false. God works through what is, but he can miraculously bless the natural things so that they are miraculously multiplied. So in God's way, what does that mean? It means that God often provides through the natural, but he's going to bless it. He's going to take the little that doesn't look like enough and he's going to make it enough. The job that looks like it's only going to pay for another day and he's going to make it a year. The job that's not there, he's going to bring to you. The money that you thought you weren't going to get, it's going to come through. Whatever the case is, God is working through these things. And so notice God's way. God will provide for you in his way, both supernaturally and naturally. All is from him. Secondly, we see that God provides in God's time. Notice that God here provides daily. The general rule here, and this is not true for all of Israel's history, is it, friends? This was a unique season in Israel's life. Eventually, Israel's going to get to a place in life. Maybe some of you are desiring to get to this place in life. Maybe some of you are there. But Israel is in this wilderness time where provision is a daily thing. It's just each day, are we going to make it? Are we going to make it? Are we going to make it? But one day, Israel's going to get to a place. We know it as the promised land. And Israel's going to come to a place where they don't have to do this. They don't have to think about God's timing. They don't have to think daily. Rather, they have abundance. And God warns them about abundance. He wants to give them abundance. He loves them. He wants to bless them. He wants to graciously supply above and beyond their needs. And yet he warns them about abundance. He says, beware, lest after you, are, you have eaten and are full, when I bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey, that you forget the Lord your God. See, you and I, we don't like the daily thing. I don't want to have to depend on God every single day for my income. But God can use that more than many times to draw us to faith in him. The problem that happens when people come into abundance, this was true of Israel, it's true of many of us today, when we come into abundance, we cease to depend upon God on a daily basis. And we begin to trust in ourselves, we begin to trust in our business, we begin to trust in the, the economy, we begin to trust in all these different things, and then perhaps the day comes when all those things go away, and we suddenly realize that the God of the wilderness the God who provided manna, the God who is able to provide on a daily basis, we realize we've forgotten him. And so, friends, I just want to encourage you that God will not only provide in God's way, he will provide in God's time. For some people, that means a season of living day by day. Maybe that's where you are. And even though that doesn't feel good, it may be just what God wants for you in this moment. For others, it might be Friday. There's a double portion. You're like, okay, but the temptation for you is are you going to respect God's boundaries of worship in your life? Are you going to make it a priority 
to worship the Lord, to honor him, to obey him, to do the work of the ministry, to participate in gospel proclamation? Or are we going to just use that as another excuse to get ahead? And then, of course, there's the temptation of abundance. We become like Israel in the promised land, in the land flowing with milk and honey, and we forget the Lord our God, and we begin to make gods out of the things that we have. God will provide in his way and in his time. Lastly, God will provide in God's amount. Notice that God has a specific amount for each day and each season of life. For Israel, they're in a place right now in our story where they are given just enough for each day. Just enough for each day. Friday, they get a double amount. And one day, they'll come into a place of abundance. But what we need to know, friends, is that even the amount God gives us is under God's providential care. There's going to be seasons in life when we, we make more, we earn more, some things pan out, some jobs work out, other ones don't. Some seasons we're working one job, some seasons we're working five jobs, some seasons it's this, that, and the other. And I just want to encourage you. God is sovereign even over the amount of our provision. So don't, don't beat yourself up if it's not what you, you want it to be. On the other hand, don't take pride if it is above and beyond your need. But each one of us must in humility thank the Lord for what he has given us. We've got to make sure that we understand God's provision comes in God's way, in God's time, in God's amount. But before we close... I want to make one major observation. What's the underlying problem here? Many of you know the rest of the Exodus story, but let me ask you, what's going to happen after Exodus 16? Is Israel going to learn to obey God? No. For 40 years, God provides, and for 40 years, Israel never learns. Now, friends, I have to see this as not being a problem of provision. There is a deeper need within Israel. If it were merely about provision, eventually Israel should get to a place where they trust God. But friends, what I want to point out to you is that Israel's need is greater than physical food. Israel needs spiritual food. I believe the same thing is true for us, for human beings in general. That we keep looking out at the world of material possessions and finances, and we keep saying, if I had enough of this bread, if I had enough cheese, then I'd be okay. But time and time again, it's revealed there is a deeper problem. There is a deeper need that supersedes any outward provision, and that is the problem of sin. To the sinful and unbelieving heart, you can never have enough. There is food that we need for our souls because there is a spiritual hunger which bread of this world cannot satisfy. In closing, I want to point you to the Gospel of John chapter 6. And with this story of Exodus 16 behind us, I want you to hear these words of Jesus, which are probably very familiar, but I hope you hear them in a fresh way, thinking about the plight of Israel and thinking about what it is in us. To not trust God, no matter how much he provides. John 6, 26 through 35 says this. Jesus answered them and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, 
not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. Therefore they said to them, What sign will you perform then, that we may seek it and believe you? What work will you do? Listen, our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Friends, in addition to God providing for us materially and financially, we need to recognize today that the real problem of unbelief is not God's way, it's not God's time, and it's not God's amount. It's our sin. It's our unbelief. To the unbelieving heart, enough is never enough. There will never be enough provision in the Lord where we will truly trust in the Lord unless we eat the bread of life, unless we receive Jesus himself, unless we acknowledge that deep down under our desires for material things and financial security is a longing to be satisfied in our souls. And Jesus is the true bread. He is the greater manna sent from heaven. And we are told in John's gospel that if we eat of him by faith, if we receive him, then we will be satisfied. You and I will be enabled to walk through the wilderness and not grow hungry. We, sh we will be able to walk and not grow faint. We will be borne up on wings as eagles. And so friends, as much as I'm going to say a prayer right now for practical provision over all of you, because I care. I care about all those things. God cares about all those things. But friends, because we know that we are a soul as well as a body, we need the bread of life. Let us pray that we feast upon the bread of life today, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now and we thank you and we praise you for the countless times in which you have provided for your people. Lord, you have given us food to eat, clothes to wear, and shelter to protect us from the elements. You have done this timelessly over and over again throughout the course of our lives in so many ways. And yet, Lord, if we're honest, we might be in a season this morning in which we are doubting whether you will continue to do that. Perhaps some are doubting whether you are able to do that. Father, I pray that you would summon forth faith in us, that you who saved Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, you who provided manna in the desert, are able to provide for your people today. And that you will, because you are good, because you are gracious, you will provide in your way, in your time, and in your amount. The challenge for us today is not to force your hand of providence. It is simply to trust it. Will we believe that you are good? Will we acknowledge that our real dilemma today 
is not where our earthly bread is going to come from, but will we receive the spiritual bread that feeds our souls and enables us to overcome doubt, unbelief, and sin. Lord, I just pray if any of us are drifting into doubt, we're drifting into fear, we're drifting into anxiety or anger, that we're sensing despondency and, and hopelessness, Father, I pray you would forgive us our sin. I pray we would look into scripture this morning in Exodus 16, and I pray we would see a mirror. That when we look at Israel, we are not looking at some strange people group that made foolish choices. We are looking at ourselves. We are looking at human nature throughout the corridor of time. This is how sinful human beings behave. Enough is never enough. No matter how many times you provide, Lord, the sin nature is able to forget and so, Lord, I pray today your people would remember your goodness. They would remember that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That however you are going to do it, you will provide in your way, in your time, in your amount. Lord, help us to trust in Christ. Help us to receive him. Help us to acknowledge that there is nothing in the world that can satisfy our spiritual hunger but Christ himself. So, Lord, we receive you today as the true bread of heaven, and we pray that you would satisfy our hunger, bless now, and provide for your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Friends, for those of you that would like to continue your time of worship and sacrifice through financial giving, there are two ways that you can do that. The first way is you can log on to our website, which is imagechurchoc.com, and there's a giving tab at the top, and you can click on that, and you can use either your debit card or your credit card. For those of you that prefer to send a check or money order or whatever the case might be, you can mail that to 27762 Antonio Parkway, L is in Larry 514, and that's Ladera Ranch, California, 92694. Again, all that information is on our website. Again, friends, let me say a couple of things about financial giving. Number one, it's an act of worship. We are worshiping God. We are remembering, we are trying not to forget that God is our provider. And when we give financially to the church, to the work of the ministry, we're acknowledging that God is our provider and that we trust him. Again, when we give sacrificially, there's always that part of us that's like, ah, if I give today, I don't know about tomorrow. But friends, I would encourage you, there's no legalistic burden placed on you. What I would encourage each one to do is simply go before the Lord and to ask the Lord to show you, Lord, what should I give? What can I give in sacrifice and praise and worship and trust in you as Jehovah Jireh, God my provider? And whatever that is, that is what you give to the Lord. You don't have to think about, well, I used to make this much in the past and I can't do that anymore. You are not accountable for what you don't have. We are each accountable for what we do have. And the Lord is ultimately looking to your heart. And so that is where the blessing is that we give as joyful givers. So for those of you, again, who have had pay cuts and things are tough, again, don't feel a burden, don't feel guilt, but just go before the Lord and out of joy and gratitude, acknowledging that he is your savior and you trust him to provide. I encourage you to do that. Uh, for those of you that are believers, you're Christians, and you normally attend a, a different church, maybe you're somewhere um, uh, outside of Orange County, whatever the case is, 
I would encourage you first and foremost to give to your local church. I believe that's where the priority ought to be before we give elsewhere is your local church. So whatever that is, I would encourage you to give there first. If you're able to support the church, uh, Image Church, you would like to after that, and the Lord's leading you to do that, then praise God. We're very thankful for your partnership. So, of course, uh, you're invited to do that. If anyone's watching today and you're you're not a Christian, again, I just want you to know that you're our guest. We are so glad to have you, and we are asking from we are asking nothing from you. So I encourage you, in a sense, not to give. Just receive, participate, ask questions, seek the Lord. And again, we would love to talk to you on your journey of faith. A few more announcements before we go. Um, first of all, kind of a praise report. Um, I've started on a book. I'm writing a book. I, Lord willing, I'll have it done in a few months. But I believe the Lord has put it upon my heart. It seems very clear that I'm going to be writing a book on prayer. And so I would just like to ask each of you if you could do me a favor and just pray for me and pray for this book. I'm setting aside um, the time to do it. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing it on. I see the goal. I feel that it's it's a burden, a good burden God's put on my heart. So I'm writing a book on prayer and I would like to have it done in a few months. So if you could just pray for this project that the Holy Spirit will lead and guide, that the words, that the structure, that the the publishing of it, the cover, the distribution, all of that would just be from the Lord because I really just want to present it unto the Lord as an offering of praise and meet the needs and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So if you would just pray, and again, I'll keep you all posted on when that book is ready to go. Uh, secondly, uh, next month is, or excuse me, next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month. That means it's Communion Sunday. So we are talking about Jesus as being the true manna. And so we're going to partake of the bread and the cup next Sunday online. So for all of you, if you're going to join us next Sunday, I encourage you get some grape juice, get some crackers, and have those ready and be prepared to join us next Sunday. Uh, for those of you that can't make it next Sunday, we will also do Communion on the first Wednesday of the month as well. So again, communion coming up this next week. Encourage you to participate. Don't forget, Wednesday night, we're going through the book of Galatians. We're getting to the end. We're in chapter 6. If you've been journeying with us, or even if you haven't, I encourage you to set your alarm, set your calendar. Wednesday, 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Hope you'll join us for that time of Bible study and prayer. And friends, as we go, thank you so much for joining with us. If you have any prayer requests or Bible questions or theology or even current events, because um, even if I don't always have the answer to every current event, I want to give people biblical, theological, doctrinal tools to be able to address the things that you're facing when you look at the news, when you uh, are encountering difficult business decisions, things of that nature. I would love to be able to help you. I feel like that's my job as a pastor. Ephesians 4 to equip the saints so they can do the work of the ministry. So if you have any prayer requests or if you have any questions about the Bible, Christian faith, doctrine, uh, practical theology, applying the truth of the Bible to contemporary events, you can email me at information at imagechurchoc.com. That's information at imagechurchoc.com, and I would love to be able to pray for you and to answer your questions as well. So let's close now with this prayer of blessing. Heavenly Father, I just lift up all my brothers and sisters right now, and I just pray that the anointing power of the Holy Spirit would be placed upon each one of them. 
I pray that you would indwell them and overflow them with your power. Lord, I pray that you would meet all of their practical needs, Lord, for food and clothing and shelter. Lord, I pray that you would provide for them richly and abundantly in your way, in your time, and in your amount. Lord, I pray you would increase their faith. I pray you would use whatever season they're in, whether it is a time of scarcity or abundance or anywhere in between, I pray that your people would feast upon the true manna, the true bread of heaven that satisfies the human soul. So Lord, just fill them to overflowing. Use them mightily and powerfully. Use them in their places of business. Cause them to connect with other people, with non-believers who do not know the Lord. They don't have the bread from heaven. They live only for the bread of this world. Lord, use my brothers and sisters to touch and change lives. Lord, we pray against this whole COVID virus thing. Lord, we pray against anything that is destroying people's lives. We pray you would set them free and use them for the glory of God. We pray for a tremendous revival to come out of this wilderness experience. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, God, friends, everyone, thank you so much for joining me. Again, there's the uh, there's the email there, information at imagechurchoc.com. So questions, prayers, send them to me. Thank you for joining with me today. God bless you all. I hope you have a wonderful Sunday afternoon and evening. And I hope to see you all again next Wednesday night. God bless you.